The following was recorded at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. How Syrian Rebels Build Bombs, today, Wednesday, January 30th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The crisis in Syria deepens with a reported Israeli airstrike inside Syrian territory. Also, we hear about a rebel bomb factory just over the border with Turkey. And later, comparing America's gun culture to Switzerland's. In the United States, you have a weapon to defend yourself. Your wife, your children, even the dog and the cats. This tradition doesn't exist in Switzerland. Plus, more crazy bad air pollution in Beijing. Those stories coming up right after the news. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. One of the most feared scenarios in Syria's civil war is that dangerous Syrian weapons fall into the wrong hands. That's especially worrisome for neighboring Israel. And today there are reports that Israeli jets attacked a convoy that may have been carrying weapons from Syria to militants in Lebanon. The world's Matthew Bell is in Jerusalem following the story. Matthew, what are your sources saying about the supposed attack? Marco, nobody's saying anything on the record, but there are now several reports based on anonymous sources that are saying there was indeed an Israeli airstrike on a weapons convoy, as you mentioned, somewhere near the Syrian-Lebanese border. It's not exactly clear where it happened or precisely what the convoy might have been carrying. Uh, But this follows reports from yesterday that Israeli planes were flying over Lebanese airspace and experts say that the details of the story have they've, as they've come out are entirely plausible. So still unconfirmed, but the basic narrative is that these weapons were being carried into uh, Lebanon to who knows who. But w- what then is Israel's concern? Israeli officials have expressed a lot of concern about the unrest in Syria creating a possible security threat for Israel, which is right next door. They're especially concerned about the transfer of chemical weapons from Syria. Uh, Syria's chemical weapons arsenal is no joke. It's it's modern, it's sophisticated, it's very scary for Israelis. Uh, they're worried about those weapons being transferred to Hezbollah, the Shiite militant group that's based in southern Lebanon, and they might just want to do something about that. I mean, if Israel did strike this convoy, to some extent, that's not really surprising because hasn't Israel in, the, in, in recent days been warning about crossing certain red lines when it comes to Syria? They have explicitly, and they've mentioned the chemical weapons. That's probably the biggest red line. Uh, They say that they're worried about these weapons potentially falling into the hands of some of the Islamist radical groups that are also fighting in Syria to topple the government. So, yes, the details aren't so surprising, but if this did happen, it is significant. Uh, Israel, this would be the first time that Israel would... Uh, have been directly involved in in hostilities connected to the unrest that's gone on for almost two years now in Syria. And it's not just chemical weapons or weapons of mass destruction. Israel is also concerned about, you know, basic light weapons like surface-to-air missiles, right? 
Right, which you can you can say they're they're light weapons, but uh, from from the Israeli point of view, they could be a, a game changer. It's interesting. Just was reading a, a story yesterday on one of the Israeli news sites that was specifically describing um, SA-17 surface-to-air missile systems, and the concern there was that these were being bought by the Syrians from the Russians, and and there was a worry they could be transferred to Israel's enemies. Uh, that story came out yesterday, and then today we have the story about the airstrike. Right. Matthew, I've also been reading reports that Israel's missile defense system, known as Iron Dome, is being redeployed as well. Can you give us a sense where those units are going and, and, and why? Israel has about half a dozen of these. These are very sophisticated uh, anti-missile missile systems that uh, the Israelis put into action during the recent uh, war with Gaza. Uh, there were reports in recent days that Two of these Iron Dome systems were moved to Haifa, which is Israel's big port city in the north. That's close to Lebanon. That's another dot you can connect here in this story. We'll leave it there. The world's Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Marco. By the way, Syrian state media say Israeli warplanes bombed not a convoy, but a military research center near Damascus. Whatever the true nature of the reported Israeli strike, Syria remains locked in a full-on civil war. Rebels opposed to President Assad lack heavy weapons, so they're trying to compensate with homemade bombs, what American forces in Iraq would have called improvised explosive devices, or IEDs. The BBC's James Reynolds has just been to a rebel bomb factory in Turkey, just across the border from Syria. So, James, paint a picture for us. What does this place look like? Imagine a beaten up old farmhouse and inside uh, on the stone floors, you have wooden tables. And on those wooden tables, you've got piles and piles of ingredients. Uh, We didn't look too closely at them, but the bomb makers assured us that they were pretty safe. They contained the ingredients they needed to make the explosives. Uh, They spent some time on the ground with a mallet trying to shatter a bottle of ice because they needed that ice in order to help cool some of the ingredients. Uh, When we were there, we watched them mix the early stages of nitroglycerin. So are these military-grade explosives they're using, or are they kind of starting from scratch and improvising with do-it-yourself chemistry experiments? To me, as a non-expert observer, it looked more like uh, homemade-style explosives. They said that they were able to get some of the ingredients they needed from informal networks that they built up over the last year or so. So, uh, I mean, in order to build bombs, you need someone who knows how to do it. And where is the training coming from for bomb making? It comes from what they learned uh, having been soldiers in President Assad's army in the many years uh, before 2011 when the uprising began. Uh, one of the people I was speaking to said that that's where he learned what he was doing and he was trying to pass on his knowledge to others. There was another man in, in the three-strong team that I met called Abu Ahmed who was actually a business graduate. Uh, he'd studied business at university in Syria and the expert bomb maker was going to spend a month with Abu Ahmed, the business graduate, to teach him uh, the skill of bomb making. How do the Syrian rebels hope to use these bombs that they're making against people or buildings or uh, against the uh, Syrian army? Against the army. Uh, and that was a question I asked several times. I, I even said, how do you know that you're not going to be killing innocent men, women and children with these bombs? And uh, one of the bomb makers, Abu Ahmed, he showed me a, a sign he had. Essentially, it said in Arabic, attention, warning. He said they would put that sign Uh, They would stick that sign up to warn civilians not to approach the area. Now, that can only work if you have total control of the area. It's not much good in a a fluid situation. And I think there will be much greater scrutiny of the rebels as 
as the conflict continues, as perhaps their weaponry increases and people begin to ask questions about where they're placing the explosives and who is killed when those explosives go off. I think those questions are only just beginning as the rebels get stronger. There have been some targeted and indiscriminate bombings in pro-Assad neighborhoods. Did you discuss this at the bomb factory with any of the, the volunteers there? No, this was on a, a much more rudimentary level, the kind of uh, bombs we were looking at. Uh, and certainly they, they actually said, interestingly, that they didn't make any suicide vests and that they were certainly not after carrying out the kind of attacks that we've seen carried out by the Nusra Front. That's a front which uh, certainly Western intelligence agencies believe is inspired by Al-Qaeda, which has carried out a number of indiscriminate, uh, people would say, uh, suicide attacks against government targets in the last year or so. These people said that they were trying to carry out targeted attacks against military targets. So there is a differentiation there. The BBC's James Reynolds in southern Turkey, just across the border from Syria. Thank you very much. My pleasure. In Washington today, a dramatic start to the first Senate hearing on gun violence since the Newtown shootings. Former Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, who was shot in the head by a gunman two years ago, made a moving opening statement. She urged lawmakers to do something to stop gun violence. It will be hard, but the time is now. You must act. While Washington debates what to do, some gun advocates are looking abroad for inspiration to Switzerland. They say the Swiss have high gun ownership rates, low crime, and lots of freedom. But some Swiss reject the comparison. Here's our story from reporter Tony Ganser in Zurich. After a long weekend, Daniel Wies's gun shop in a village near the Swiss capital Bern is buzzing with sportsmen and gun enthusiasts eager to... Rearm. V says his customers are hunters, sportsmen, collectors, and folks who want to protect themselves. In that respect, Swiss gun enthusiasts wouldn't seem so different from those in the U.S. But there is one big difference. Joe Long is vice president of the Swiss Green Party and a member of the pacifist movement. He also survived Switzerland's worst shooting tragedy in 2001 when a gunman shot 14 people in a state legislature. In the United States, you have a weapon to defend yourself. Your home, your garden, your wife, your children, even the dog and the cats. This tradition doesn't exist in Switzerland. Swiss law requires men to enlist in the military or do national service by age 25. Women can choose to enlist. This compulsory military service generally means much of the population knows how to handle guns. In Switzerland, to be citizen and to have a weapon was very, very linked with community or with the, the nation. It was not linked with your garden or your family. But gun control has steadily tightened in Switzerland, moving from little to no restrictions to a permitting system and gun owner registries. The debate over tighter rules was renewed this month when a gunman with a history of psychiatric treatment killed three people. If you have an incident as Newtown or Winnenden or Dumblain, the politicians come and they make a policy to prove to people we are here and we understand you and we will um, enforce the law. But in fact, 
you never will be able to avoid such strategies. Herman Suter is vice president of ProTel, which he calls a sister organization to the NRA, though there are major differences between the organizations in terms of finding consensus. The Swiss have been compromising on more stringent gun rules for more than 10 years, including limiting access to ammunition. In a reasonable way, you have to do both. You have to have a normal gun control and you have to have a reasonable ammunition control. I think with the actual law we have in Switzerland, we fulfill these two points. The most important point is the point of the society. Suter thinks the Swiss military tradition and sports shooting activities foster gun education from a young age, important in a country with a strong gun culture. Estimates put the number of guns in Swiss homes between 2.3 and 4.5 million out of a population of 8 million. The vast majority are military-issue rifles bought by soldiers after their service. Gun advocates in the U.S. have argued that crime is low in Switzerland because there are more guns, and it's true there are few shooting deaths. But Roger Schneeberger, Secretary General of the State Police and Justice Directors Conference, says it doesn't seem that guns are a deterrent to crime, as U.S. advocates claim. If you see the development of the number of burglaries in Switzerland, this is a very negative trend. We have more and more uh, every year. And if uh, burglars would think there is a weapon in every house, I shouldn't go to a Swiss house for a burglary, this wouldn't be the figures we have uh, recently. Schneeberger says one of the biggest assets for Switzerland in preventing shootings, despite a gun tradition, is a well-integrated health care system. Ich habe den Eindruck, in Amerika sind sehr große soziale Gefälle. Es sind mehr Leute, die Gunsmith Daniel Wies agrees that fewer people fall through the cracks in Swiss society compared to a place like the United States, and maybe that's why gun crime is still rare. And despite some in the U.S. praising Swiss gun culture, Wies and many in Switzerland think the trend will clearly lead to more gun and ammo controls, and he accepts that as the current reality. For the world, I'm Tony Ganser in Zurich. Still ahead, get ready for the drop from a 100-foot wave on PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. News out of Somalia has been more positive recently than it's been for decades. The nation on the Horn of Africa is trying to overcome its reputation as a failed state. In September, a new leader took over, and he's been working to create the country's first functioning central government since 1991. Residents of Mogadishu say the capital's main streets are often chock-a-block with shoppers now, as Somalis who've been living abroad have returned to open stores and businesses. And Somali women have been especially encouraged by a new constitution that promises equality for women and by a government pledging to do more to address problems like rape. But women's rights activists still see reasons for concern. Lisa Shannon is the co-founder of Sister Somalia, a sexual violence crisis center in Mogadishu that she created with Somali activist Fartoun Abdisalan Adan. Shannon has just returned from the Somali capital where she saw some worrying developments. 
The week before I arrived, a woman who had talked to the press about a gang rape at the hands of government soldiers was arrested. And then the journalist who they believed interviewed her was arrested, and they were both held for about a week until she recanted the story. That seemed to really change the climate. I mean, women at the center had been feeling like they could be more open. Obviously, everyone was really optimistic, and the tone just changed really quickly. I mean, even when I was there, we saw an awful lot of harassment of women's advocates who were believed to have helped the victim. So it's very mixed messages and kind of chilling. We're not sure what it means. Let's establish, though, that things are indeed changing outside of women's issues in Mm -hmm. Somalia. I mean, more Somalis are coming back. You were just telling me that there are now four flights a day uh, to Mogadishu as opposed to four flights a week. Uh, And you actually made it into the center of Mogadishu on this trip that you just got back from. Yeah. A year and a half ago, I got about four blocks away from the African Union compound. This time I spent, you know, several hours driving around the center of Mogadishu, got out of the car, walked onto the beach where kids were playing soccer. Um, You know, it's, it's a city that's just piles of rubble. But at the same time, you can see that they're they're using some of the rubble to rebuild walls. There, there's new construction. So it's very hopeful right now. So in this transition, is the idea of a rape crisis or a sexual violence crisis center perceived as kind of a very Western notion to the citizens of Mogadishu? You know, that's an interesting question. I certainly would have imagined it would be. But the ideas of women's, women's rights seem to really be spreading. The women who come to the center themselves uh, are actually going back out into their camps and serving as kind of word of mouth contacts or counselors for people who may have gone through some things like this. So you would not expect Mogadishu or Somalia to be a new hotbed of a women's movement, but that seems to be happening. What are kind of the rules for being a woman there these days? Do you have to behave a certain way? Uh, absolutely. Women wear full uh, full headdress uh, and they're covered from head to toe. I mean, that was particularly true with Shabab, but it continues on. Uh, you would never go out without your head covered. Shabab, of course, the militants in Somalia. Right. Yeah. Obviously, there have traditionally been issues around women speaking about rape at all. And if they do, there has been this kind of... Um, brutal, systemic victim blaming that happens. So women can be jailed, they can be killed. So there's that set of issues. I mean, they can they can run businesses and move about, but they have not traditionally been invited to the table uh, in decision-making roles. What is just the risk of going to the authorities and saying, so-and-so raped me? I mean, are there reprisals? Often they will arrest the victim, saying that it's a false accusation, that she's lying. In Shabab territory, a woman could be stoned to death for making an accusation like that against Shabab militants. So it's very risky. And even if she does report it, there's not a solid justice system in place to to pursue the complaint, even if they weren't attacking her for showing up and, and reporting it. And I gather Fartoon, the woman with whom you uh, founded Sister Somalia, has been threatened Fartoon's husband was killed for his human rights work, and she talks about basically every day feeling grateful she's still alive. I mean, when I was there, I saw someone had written on the back of her SUV in in the dust, I want to kill you. So there's this sense of kind of measured risk for them that it may be risky, but it's worth it. People are hungry for this, you know? Like, for instance, when I was leaving, 
I was going through the airport. I was stopped. And they opened my bags. They thought I was a journalist. And for me, this was actually a pretty scary moment because I had published something on the New York Times website the night before criticizing the government. I thought, oh, no. They open my bags and then they ask, are you a journalist? And I say, no, I mentioned Fartoon. I mentioned the center. And the woman's eyes light up. She throws her fist in the air and says, women's rights. Wow. And waves me right through. That's impressive. So that's a shift. That was Lisa Shannon, co-founder of Sister Somalia, a sexual violence crisis center in Mogadishu. Shannon created the center with Somali activist Fartoon Abdisalan Adan. We called Fartoon to ask her about those threats on her life. The work we are doing, a lot of people, they might not be happy with it. A lot of people, they don't want to talk about it, what happened to them, because all the stigma involved as uh, the rape victims. Fartoon's daughter, Ilwad Elman, also works at the Sister Somalia Center in Mogadishu. She says Somalia's new government needs to begin investigating allegations of abuse, especially charges of rape perpetrated by soldiers and other authorities. We feel that the government needs to accept that this happens and respond to it instead of denying it. What we feel right now is a very dangerous turn, is a government that's more interested in protecting itself and its new image as opposed to its civilians. Some of the change happening in Somalia, though, could help Ilwad and Fartoon's cause. Take Fartoon's other daughter, 22-year-old Iman. She had also been working at the Rape Crisis Center, but then she made a bold move. She joined the Somali Armed Forces. Her decision hasn't been easy for Fartoon to cope with. I'm always worried about her, going with the soldiers and having a gun. It worries me a lot. I asked her many times, you shouldn't do this. And she always said, I like this and I can change. It feels like I'm changing something. Iman is one of just a handful of female soldiers in Somalia. She dresses in battle fatigues and full headscarf. Ilwad says she's proud of her younger sister. It's very um, uplifting for a lot of young girls that see her in that position. People are usually taken aback or they're shocked. Even the wearing the clothes. Yeah, I mean, she, most women in Somalia, they wear skirts or dresses, and she's in her uniform gear, wearing pants, and she demands respect. And Iman's decision to join the military could help the rape crisis center. Sister Ilwad says she's seen some evidence of that already. Since she has been in her position, we have had better connections and better communications with the government, especially the army. And um, she takes it upon herself to really follow up with many of the cases that she hears that involve men in government uniforms and women being raped and to see how she can actually investigate it. And it's not just her family saying that. Activist Lisa Shannon thinks Iman's decision to become a soldier has itself brought some change. You know, that move did shock a lot of people. I think she's one of four women who are in the Somali armed forces. And she got a lot of looks and a lot of pushback until she actually ended up on the front lines behaving in a way that was quite brave and won a lot of respect. And in fact, even in the armed forces, she said there was a situation where a woman was reporting a rape and she came across, you know, a lot of men kind of grilling this girl about it. And she suggested, hey, you know, why don't we just get a written statement? and take it from there. So her presence there is sort of shifting things as well. That was author and activist Lisa Shannon, who recently returned from Mogadishu. We also heard from Ilwad Elman and her mother, Fartoon Abdisalan Adan, who both work at a sexual violence crisis center in the Somali capital. We have photos of the women, including one of Iman Elman in full combat gear and headscarf at theworld.org. This is PRI.
I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, the creator of the new TV spy series, The Americans, says the CIA is usually portrayed in extremes, overly conspiratorial or absurdly glamorized. What is very rarely gotten to is the kind of brilliant, beautiful bureaucracy that I think is, is most interesting about the real CIA. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Remember a week or so ago when the air in Beijing was so polluted that it was ranked as crazy bad? Well, it's happening again for the fourth time in recent weeks. It's gotten so bad that a real estate tycoon has launched an online campaign for a Chinese Clean Air Act. The world's Mary Kay Magstad is in Beijing, staying indoors. Are people in China talking about a, a turning point here, Mary Kay? Well, a lot of people think, you know, how much more of this can we take? Um, it hasn't just been four times in the last three weeks. It's been almost the last three weeks. I mean, by international standards, air quality index of 300 or above is hazardous. There have been days where I've looked at the index and it's been 300 down from 700 or down from 500. And I thought, oh, it's not such a bad day. And yes, a lot of people here are talking about it. The smog that's affecting China right now, it's not just Beijing. It's an area that's the size of Texas times two. Wow. It's huge. And this is a significant issue that the Chinese government has been sort of kicking down the road as an issue that it has to deal with. And I think there's been such an outcry this month. Um, there's a recognition that something needs to be done and more quickly than perhaps had originally been planned. How is it affecting people's health? Hospitals are seeing more people come in with respiratory problems. Those who were prone to asthma are getting asthma attacks. You know, some one of the things that's behind this as a long-term problem is that the current economic model is we're going to continue to promote urbanization. We're going to continue to build more buildings. We're going to build more roads. All that takes cement. It takes steel. It takes building materials. You need factories to produce those materials. Those factories need coal, and coal is responsible for a lot of the pollutants that are in the air. You know, I read there's even an online campaign, we mentioned it earlier, for a China Clean Air Act by a real estate tycoon and internet blogger Pan Shiyi, and it's said to be getting millions of followers. So it seems some people in China, many people, recognize the pitfalls of this nonstop growth. Absolutely. I mean, this is air everyone is breathing. These are concerns that people have about the health of their children, of themselves, of their elderly parents, and about the future of China and what the air is going to be like to breathe 20, 30 years from now. Interestingly, there actually is already something like a Clean Air Act or a movement toward it by the government itself. The Ministry of Environmental Protection has come out with a new five-year plan on how to control atmosphere pollution. And there is an amendment to an existing law that has been languishing for three years. But if it were to be passed, it calls for use of clean coal and for 
coal scrubbers to be used and for various other steps that would help reduce emissions across the board. The problem is many factories, many managers, many heads of industrial companies don't really want to have to do that because it costs money and it will eat into their profits. As long as they have political connections and they've got the ear of decision makers and the decision makers buy their argument that it's more important for China's economy to grow fast now than to worry about the long-term effects on the environment, it's going to be tough to get these sorts of clean air measures passed through and implemented in a way that's going to make a real difference. Right. You know, it's funny, not funny, haha, but even the pollution triggers the profiteering impulse in China. It seems I gather that some people are doing a brisk business selling face masks, and there's even a guy who's selling cans of clean air. Right. This is a rather self promoting businessman, a very wealthy businessman who's doing this to make a point. So it's cans of clean air that are about the size of a Coke can. He's labeled the air with, you know, sort of different regions of China, the clean air of Tibet or the clean air of southern, southwestern Yunnan in the mountains or whatever. Mm. Um, and it's it's a joke, but it's also to get people to think about this is what it comes to, that, you know, you need to inhale from a tin can to be able to get some clean air in this place. Can, can you actually taste the air, Mary Kay? You can, what, actually. You what, can. It, in the can last... you feel it? Yeah. And in fact, the last couple of days, I, I think it's made me feel a little dizzy. Wow. But there are a lot of people here who came to live in China with no particular health issues, who have developed asthma. There are families of expats that are thinking of leaving. But, you know, millions, tens of millions of Chinese are hundreds of millions are affected by this pollution. And most of them aren't going anywhere. And it's their government that has to be thinking about their welfare and not just about how to grow the economy. The world's Mary Kay Maxdad in Beijing. Thanks a lot, Mary Kay. Thank you, Marco. For our GeoQuiz today, we'll keep it short. You've probably all seen the photo of that American surfer riding a monster wave earlier this week. Garrett McNamara caught a wave the size of a small mountain, really, somewhere along Europe's Atlantic coast. He may have set a world record in the process. Can you name where exactly the big wave came roaring in? The answer's coming up in about five. Here's an odd fact. Cocaine is produced in South America, yet according to the UN, it's now the leading export of the West African nation of Guinea-Bissau. Drug traffickers started using the tiny country as a transshipment point to Europe about 10 years ago. These days, the country has been labeled a narco state. Military officers connected to the drug trade there staged a coup last year. The civilian government fled, and it's now in exile in Portugal, waiting for some international assistance. David Hecht caught up with one exiled officer in the Portuguese capital, Lisbon. In a square in downtown Lisbon, old, graying Africans from the former Portuguese colonies stand around talking about the good old days. Every day, every day they stand here like waiting for something. Jorge Lopez Cater complains that this older generation is stuck in a time warp from the 1970s. He says they're still basking in the glory of wars of independence against the country where they're now living. And they call this place the Museum of the Black Wood. Because they're like trees. They're standing, they're like, yeah, like trees all day long. Many are from Guinea-Bissau, the first of the Portuguese African colonies to win its war of independence in 1973, the year that Cater was born. 
But now Guinea-Bissau is dependent again, this time on cocaine. The narco-traffic sought to control the country and this is what is happening. Cater was an advisor in Guinea-Bissau's last democratically elected government. His father-in-law, Carlos Gomez Jr., was the prime minister. But they and other officials fled last year after army leaders fueled by cocaine money overthrew the government. Cocaine trafficking, Cater says, is only the latest of Guinea-Bissau's problems. The real issue, he says, is that the country's freedom fighters are still battling each other. They never learn to govern. They took over the country and they start to uh, govern without having any notion about what is a country, what is a state, what to do. The country's independence movement became its sole political party, and over the years it became increasingly corrupt. When the cocaine traffickers came along, the army joined forces with them and got rid of the government. Soon after the coup d'etat, the army uh, created a list of persons that could not leave the country. My name and my father's name and other people I know, members of the government, were in that list. So it was kind of a little bit disturbing. More than a little. In the past, Guinea-Bissau's army has assassinated government officials, including the longtime president, Nino Vieira, in 2009. Cater rushed to get his family out of the country. First my kids with my sister and then my wife. He took refuge in the Portuguese embassy compound for a couple of months, then one day snuck out, drove to the airport and boarded a plane. Now in Lisbon, he doesn't see how the situation back home will improve without some kind of international intervention. This is what we've been asking for so long because we don't have the means to, to, to fight the alliance between the army and the narcotraffics and some politicians. So who is going to protect you? Western powers have cut aid to Guinea-Bissau and imposed sanctions. But they're not offering military action. Stopping drug traffickers from taking over a country is less of an international priority than stopping Al-Qaeda affiliates, who've taken over most of nearby Mali. In the meantime, Cater sits around playing shoot-em-up video games with his kids in Lisbon. His father-in-law, the deposed prime minister, lives around the corner. He still heads the government in exile, and Cater is still his advisor. But nowadays, Cater spends more time networking with Guinea-Bissauians who, like him, were babies when their fathers were fighting Portugal in the 1970s. They write letters to the UN and EU and the African Union. But mostly they hang out at a popular nightclub on Lisbon's waterfront, and they wait. At this moment, I don't see future. The democracy not functioning. What can we do? <laughs> what can we do? For The World, I'm David Hecht, Lisbon. Let's head north from Lisbon now, up the Atlantic coast of Portugal. That's where American Garrett McNamara rode a massive wave earlier this week. The daredevil surfer caught a 100-foot monster just off the coast of Nazaré in Portugal. And Nazaré is the answer to our geo-quiz. Rui Ennis has surfed waves around the world in Indonesia, Australia, Brazil, Chile, to name a few places. He also runs a surfer's camp near Oporto, Portugal. And he says he's very familiar with the waves at Nazaré. Yeah, yeah, I've been up there since I'm a kid, you know, it's one of the famous beaches here in Portugal. And what's the biggest wave you've ever surfed up in Nazaré? Oh, comparing with these waves, I just surf like baby waves, you know, like two meters, two meter and a half. Right. If it's bigger than two meters there already, it's such an open space, you know, the ocean is, is entering there with such a violence that 
two meters for me is more than enough, you know, <laughs> Yeah, no, we're, we're, as you say, we're talking waves that are kind of on the outside break, and uh, you need a jet ski to get out there. They're just so big, you can't kind of climb over them w- with your arms. So as to these 100-foot waves, where do they come from? I mean, you, you surf these waves, two meters, that's about six, seven feet, and then you get these waves 100 feet? How does that happen? In Nazare, is because of a geologic landscape under the water that is basically a very deep cliff that directs the swell in the direction of the beach and creates these massive waves that have a triangle shape size and uh, yeah it's basically connection with swell wind a little bit of the conditions make the day you know so i want to know a bit more about the, this uh, structure of the ocean floor this is very funny because uh, as Portugal been a country that is basically always turned to the ocean, this is something that we learn in school since young age. Basically, we call it Canyon de Nazaré, that is a shape of a canyon. A canyon. Yeah, so we call it Canyon. If you know about ocean and coastline about Portugal, you will know about this because people have been since the 500s watching waves breaking there and uh, understanding that ocean is so powerful that no one dares to go there, you understand me? Mm. Just nowadays, with this new generation of surfing and the new technology that is being applied to surfers and the way they can reach areas that before were unimaginable. If people have seen it, I'm sure they have, the photo of Garrett McNamara dropping down this 100-foot wave, and in the foreground, you see this fortress uh, there in Nazare. How close is that giant wave to the coast? Because I guess the telephoto lens is kind of cheating it a little bit. This photo, uh, by coincidence, is also taken by a photographer that is called Tomane, that is from here, from the north, and uh, he he made a very good work because he made this perspective that you are talking about, that you see the castle, it's called City de Nazaré, and then you see the wave. But in reality, there is a very, very humongous cliff all the way down to the beach, and the wave is in certain distance from that cliff. So it's quite a big gap. So no risk of that wave crashing into the fort? No, 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 not that risk because it's been beaten by the ocean for ages. So it's like a funnel. It's all that energy getting kind of pushed the closer you get to the shore, huh? Yeah, exactly. And I can tell you, it's basically a connection of power all in one spot. So it's very powerful. That's why they use the jet ski because they wouldn't be able to pedal for a monster like this. They yeah. only jet skis, only with the system of a team coordinating everything. They are able to do this. Because it's risking their lives, eh? Yeah. Give us a sense. If you fall off your board, how many tons of water is then going to collapse on you? You can die. So it's a bit of a betting deal. It can be everything all right. They use vests. They are always uh, on the lookout. But can something happen and uh, you're never going to see the guy again, you know? It's a big risk, I believe. Yeah, it's scary just to see them on the top of the wave and say, all right, there they go. It's no turning back now. (laughs) No way. It's a go. Go or die. I mean, can you imagine, though, what it's like to be on top of a 100-foot wave? I would be imagining that it would be something like going down the hill on a big mountain, but instead of the mountain being stopped, no, it's moving, it's generating speed, it's creating life, it's moving. Eh? So it would be something that is only for few, and few people have the privilege to feel this. Yeah, I'll say. Rui Enes runs Z Surfers Camp in Portugal near Oporto, if you're ever in that neck of the woods. And if you haven't seen that insane wave, we've got it posted at theworld.org. Rui, great to meet you. Thanks. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you very much. Have a good day. And this is PRI.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Recent headlines from Russia have some wondering if the Cold War is back on. Just today, Russia announced it's scrapping an agreement with the U.S. to cooperate on cross-border crimes like terrorism and human trafficking. That's just the latest sign of a growing chill in relations between Moscow and Washington. Perfect timing then for The Americans, a new TV series premiering tonight on the FX channel. The year is 1981. The Cold War is definitely still on. And in the house next door, the one with the white picket fence, live the Jennings, a suburban family with typical suburban concerns. Car won't start. We have to take the bus to the metro. Except Dad, Philip Jennings, and his wife Elizabeth are Russian spies. Sound familiar? The plot is reminiscent of those Russian sleeper spies, the ones whose cover was blown in 2010 after years of living seemingly boring lives in places like suburban New Jersey. Writer and former CIA agent Joe Weisberg is co-creator of the series. He says he was, in fact, inspired by that real-life spy drama. In the middle of that scandal, I got a call from the heads of DreamWorks Television asking me if I'd like to develop a show based on what was going on. And I said, sure. And then I wandered the street for a couple weeks thinking, how do you make that into a television show? It's got a real big problem, which is we're not enemies with the Russians anymore, so there aren't really any stakes. Who cares? And after about two weeks, I thought, oh, it's easy. You just put it back in the Cold War. There is also the story of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg uh, electrocuted for conspiracy to commit espionage. But that predates the Jennings by several decades. And uh, I mean, that story showed the cruel depths of the Cold War. Do you think the Americans, your drama, is going to kind of underscore just how insidious the whole spying business was? Or is this more kind of the Sopranos as a spy game? We think of it on different days, different ways. We think about the Rosenbergs and what a strange, tragic story that was and how the couple was so ideologically committed and they were willing to die. And, and the fact that the espionage has, you know, just presents that kind of drama that people with that kind of commitment uh, will do anything for the cause. You're not just a writer. You're also a former CIA agent. Were you undercover? And how much of this is based on your own experiences? I was undercover at the CIA for about four years. Um, I was primarily in training the whole time I was there. Um, in particular, what influenced this story was having a look at the people I worked with and what it was like to live undercover with a family, uh, including often kids who don't know what you're doing. Because if you tell a seven-year-old mom or dad works at the CIA, they go to school and tell their friends and your cover is blown. Right. So thinking about how that affected families made me want to tell a story about a family in that situation. I'd be curious to know, Joe, how you feel the CIA is portrayed generally in entertainment. What you see all the time is this kind of vast conspiratorial mindset uh, on the one hand or this absurd glamorization on the other hand. And what is very rarely gotten to is the kind of brilliant, beautiful bureaucracy that I think is, is most interesting about the real CIA. It's something that I'm always looking for uh, the TV show or, or the movie that, that will capture that. So maybe you can just kind of lay out for us, if you're a CIA agent, what are the rules once you become a screenwriter that you still have to kind of submit stuff to the CIA for approval? When you leave the agency, one of the things they do is bring you into a room and you sit across the desk from a CIA employee, and he takes out an envelope, and out of the envelope comes the very secrecy agreement you signed when you joined. And it turns out, um, although I had forgotten this, that under the line where you signed your name when you joined, there's another line. And that line is for you to sign again when you leave, just to remind you uh, that you are committed to this secrecy agreement for the rest of your life. Committed twice. 
Right. Um, what do you think Russian audiences will make of this show? I can't tell you how much time I've spent thinking about that. It has not yet sold to Russia, so we don't know for sure if it will air there or not. There are a lot of different audiences there. I wonder what the sort of uh, liberals there will think. I wonder what the general population will think. And of course, Putin, who is in the KGB and in the foreign intelligence service of the KGB, what will he think? You know, it's a show that I think is very kind of fair-minded towards the KGB, uh, but I don't know that Putin would necessarily see it that way. And of course, the, you know, liberals there, do they want to see a show that is fair-minded towards the KGB? It could be very upsetting to them. I think it could be used politically in a lot of different ways. It's very hard to predict. Joe, I gather you've got another spy drama in the works. Do you miss the clandestine life of an agent? I have to say that I do not. (laughs) I find writing about it uh, very suitable. Right. Vicarious is good enough. Yeah, much better. (laughs) Joe Weisberg, writer and former CIA agent, co-creator of the new series that premieres tonight on FX, The Americans. Thanks so much, Joe. Thank you very much, Marco. Finally today, imagine you're a famous singer. Then you marry a president and your career is interrupted for reasons of protocol. Well, that's what happened to Italian-born singer Carla Bruni. She's married to Nicolas Sarkozy, who stepped down last year as president of France. Now Bruni's back in business, music-wise, and she's getting ready to release a new CD. The world's Jerry Haddon has a story. For Carla Bruni, being first lady wasn't a whole lot of fun. This is her in a 2010 TV interview, lamenting how cruel the press was being toward her and especially her husband, the president. Do you know any journalist who's been neutral when it comes to Nicolas Sarkozy, she asked. French media have been speculating that Bruni will seek revenge on her new CD called Little French Songs. But this first single doesn't go on the offensive. It's a nostalgic look back to the 1970s. It's called Keith and Anita, as in Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards and his former girlfriend, the model Anita Pallenberg. The two became legendary symbols in the post-hippie sex, drugs, and rock and roll era. It's not an accident that Keith and Anita was released Monday. It was husband Nicolas Sarkozy's 58th birthday. Probably also not an accident how it avoids media bashing. After all, like any singer, Bruni liked good reviews. Which may be why Bruni's agent, Bertrand de Labbey, has been making the rounds on French radio, urging journalists to forget Bruni's time as First Lady and refocus, as she's doing, on her art. Artistically speaking, Bruni's single sort of sounds like a jazzed-up version of her breakout hit, Quelqu'un m'a dit, over a decade ago. So if you like the old stuff, the new should please. The new CD is out April 1st. On it, Bruni pays tribute to some of the masters of French chanson, and there's at least one love song to her hubby who she calls Raymond. My Raymond might wear a tie, she sings, but underneath, he's a pirate. A pirate she's out to defend, with some choice words for the media. French news outlets report this same song attacks them for making her life as first lady miserable. For the world, I'm Jerry Haddon. The former First Lady of France gets the last word today. We have one of Carla Bruni's music videos at theworld.org. 
From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. We're back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.